everybody. Welcome back to the Tipsy Ghost. We are your tipsy host, Sarah, Sarah, and Lizzie. Hello. Hello. What's going on? Well, I have a fun game. <gasps> a fun game? I mean, it's kind of a game. I found a website, a, <laughs> a website that uh, lets you know if you would, your survival rate, basically, oh, during a Scream movie. Based oh, on your astrological okay. sign. I thought it was going to oh. be a zombie apocalypse. I was like, I'm dead. I already Here's know the it. thing. Based on my sign, it might be like a pretty successful rate. But like, based on me, Do you identify with your signs? Either In some regard. No, Aries are supposed to be like fiery and outgoing and all that. And I am none of those things. I do not identify with my sign at all. Well, let's see if our signs okay. would, okay. what their survival rate would be in a Scream movie. All right. What is your sign? I am a Libra. You are a total Libra. I do not feel like I am at all. <laughs> they are fun, outgoing. They're friendly with everyone. I am Everybody not Everybody loves them. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. I Boys have a friend who was born two days after me. So she's a Libra as well. And she posts all the time about her sign and like stuff. And she's like, oh my gosh, this is so mean. I'm like, we are so different. <laughs> you may not be her, but you are a Libra. Okay, Libra, your survival percentage is 15%. Oh, well, that is... <laughs> Sounds about right. You'd want to be friends with them. I, yeah. Th- Talk it through. I said I thought this was a zombie apocalypse at first, and I would not survive a zombie apocalypse because I could not shoot a zombie because I know they used to be a person. Oh. I can kill another person. Yeah, no, see, I no, I can. Yeah. <laughs> I see, would try to... see, there's the Aries and Scorpio. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be trying to find a... A cure. <laughs> no. All right. Listen, no, to your, listen to your 15% reasoning. Uh, okay. You love a sense of community. And <laughs> what with all the killings, you know your friends could use some reassurance. Oh, yes. For sake. Here we are. <laughs> That's why you invite everyone over. You think togetherness will be healing and you want to restore some sense of order to the chaos. But yes. in the middle of the party, you notice that folks seem to be disappearing. The numbers in the living room are dwindling. <laughs> this is getting anxious. <laughs> Where could everyone be going? Where They're they? dying. You scan the crowd and decide to go looking, just in case anyone needs an ear or a shoulder to cry oh, on. Oh, for God's sake. I fucking told you. <laughs> <laughs> You could not be more of a Libra. <laughs> Surely, your missing friends are just off taking a second for themselves. It's only it's only once you enter the backyard that you notice a shadowy figure off in the corner. You're not sure who so it is, but your gut says something it's is so off. Stupid. You feel paralyzed. The figure looks ominous. But what if it's just a friend in need? <laughs> Libras oh, are notorious. <laughs> Libras are notoriously indecisive, even when they sense danger. Uh-huh. They won't know what to do or which way to go. You approach cautiously, but as you get closer, your heart starts beating. Maybe you should retreat, call um, someone, yell. It stops beating. Run. <laughs> but while you're debating the options, you notice the knife. The figure turns towards you, and you see a face that's all too familiar. Ghost face. I'm dead. I would die going to check on somebody. <laughs> that is a fact. I told you. Okay, that I identify with 100%. But normally I don't identify as a Libra. Wait, don't look at the other people who are like you. Just like read the descriptions of it. Like every time I see that, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Lindsay. For sure. <laughs> Let's, you said Scorpio? I'm a Scorpio. And let me guess. Um, I'm going to guess. My survival rate is like, I'm going to guess like 60, which is high. Because I'm a bitch. I'm going to Scorpios say are. 70. Your survival percentage is 85%. Oh, my what? God. See, but here's the thing. Here's my downfall Why in a Scorpio world. Why are you not taking world. care of me? 
Here's I'm just gonna guess. The Scorpio probably tries to make out with the the villain. That's usually what happens. They're always like hypersexual in all these zodiac things. Scorpios are totally mysterious. You can never really know what's going on with them, and usually they're equally skeptical of everyone else. I mean that part's true. Simply put, you never trust a stranger. You're guarded, and with all the recent killings, you know that anyone could be the culprit. Just because <laughs> someone seems innocent doesn't mean they are innocent. So you keep your distance from any potential suspects and even from some friends just to be safe. <laughs> Lindsay. <laughs> I'm like, kill me. Are you okay? You're <laughs> like, stay away from me. You're gonna get me killed. <laughs> You're not going to end up on the wrong side of ghost face knife. Uh-huh. All week you've been excommunicating friends from your inner circle or saying no to party invitations. <laughs> You're the first life. to leave. <laughs> say she's not doing that because she doesn't want to get This doesn't sound like it. You're the first to leave any event that seems off. And when the phone rings and an unknown voice asks if you like scary movies, you hang up. It must be someone seeking revenge on you for skipping their party. But the phone rings again and a voice says, I like what you're wearing. Again, you hang up. Yes, you're spooked, but it must be a friend or an ex-friend. This phone rings again and the voice says the front door is unlocked. That can't be true. You never leave the door unlocked. But you hang up and grab a knife from the kitchen. When you hear the front door open, you run in the opposite direction. The question is, where will you go? I'll find something. Yeah, see, so some of the things I identify with, but like you guys, I feel like know a different side of me because I'm a lot more open Mm -hmm. with you than I probably am to others. But I definitely can see how I'm closed off. Two people. Garden. We also see drunk Sarah who talks to everybody. Oh, I. That's I call that. When you called me outgoing, I'm like, I am not the outgoing <laughs> one in this group. You are. That's a lie. That's a bold faced lie. Boydson. I'm an Aries. No, who is more outgoing <laughs> oh. between the two of us? Thank you for asking. I'm going to make you decide. Boydson is. Oh, it. Well, I guess it depends on the situation. All right. Let's say we're out ghost hunting with a group of people. Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I don't want to talk to anybody but you guys. Lindsay and I stand in the corner and we're like, man, she's she did really it again. Oh, look, she made another friend. <laughs> uh, well, maybe I die first. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so I'm an Aries and my survival percentage is only 28%. I was what? going to guess 10. I don't believe that. That's insulting. Okay, I was 15. <sighs> so with I win. Tell me if this is me. With your desire to do what you want, when you want, you're not often the type to hesitate. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You hesitate all the time because you're so indecisive. (laughs) You know what you want, when you want it. Sorry, you wanted me to say when it was right and not. (laughs) Right away. That's fair. Okay. Aries are fiercely independent, curious, and easily bored, so they're definitely the character to go off exploring alone. Okay, I can see that, but like maybe not as dramatic as they put it. Curious and easily bored, I can see. This, coupled with a sense of courage, brings you out Mm. to the garage in the middle of the party. (laughs) No sense of courage. No, you would not go out to the garage by yourself. You hear a couple of loud bangs from inside, but surely it's just the wind. No, it's a murderer. (laughs) Yeah, no, you don't explain things away. You notice other guests shying away, but you're not scared. Slowly, you open the door and flick on the light switch. Nothing happens. You figure the lights must be out, but fortunately, you came prepared with a flashlight. Now that is me. 
Always prepared. That, yeah, that prepared. Right. You shine the light around the, the space and things appear normal. There are boxes stacked in piles, storage containers, old winter coats. You wander through the mess, wondering if the banging came from a fallen box or a window that was left open. Story of our lives. Your heartbeat races as you move your flashlight around the garage. You know it's nothing. You're just scaring yourself. But still, there's something eerie about this space. Then you see it. The creaky open window. Of course. <laughs> You'll laugh, reach out and close it, turn back, eager to let the other party guests know about the source of the mysterious noise. But as you whip around, you come face to face with a hunting knife, glistening in the moonlight, held oh by none other than Ghostface. Hey, there you, you go. did. You're alone with nowhere to run. You did. You know what? At least you sounded very smart and like you were thinking things through before you got killed. Me, I was just like, I love everyone. I trust everyone. I'm just going to go I want to check outside. on them. They seem like they're not okay. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think she's okay. Let me go out into a dark backyard by myself. <laughs> Listen, you just need to hang with me. Apparently, I have the highest survival rate. I would. If someone tried we, to kill me, though, I'd be like, is a lie. <laughs> do you want to talk about I it? I do feel like you would die first. <laughs> Obviously, mm-hmm. I would die first. Especially if they complimented me. I'd be like, <laughs> We've talked that's about it. This. It's over. I like what you're wearing. Oh, thank you. I'd be like, thank you. Do you want to go talk about it somewhere alone? Yes, I really would. Just keep complimenting me. to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What are we going to talk about tonight? True crime. That was so nice. Was it? It was beautiful. That's the best we've ever done. Can we give it that? We are we ready. <laughs> we are going to talk about true crime, guys. We're each you got tell. a story we're each prepared. Got. We each got we each got one. I am a couple bottles of not a couple bottles. A bottle? Oh my god! <laughs> Three we, bottles of wine. Me deep. and you did uh, finish off that bottle of wine, though. It's all gone. We are having a good time. We just celebrated some some good times. So here we are. Should we spin? Spin the wheel. Spin the wheel. Yay! Sarah. It's Sarah. Oh, my God. Good. Okay, I am going to talk to you about some true crime, okay? Oh, good. I'm 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 so glad you prepared what we talked about preparing. Uh, You never know with me. I'm a loose cannon. (laughs) Um, But this one, I think, is going to, you know, bring up some interesting conversations between us all. I like conversations. All right. And also, my story is from Germany, so oh, be don't. prepared. <laughs> you do not like conversations. No, I'm like, yeah, you do. <laughs> with us, you do, but. Yeah, basically with you guys. Who are you? <laughs> and that's it. I didn't even think twice. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Um, so, my story is from Germany. And Germany. I have to pronounce a lot of things, so apologies. We do advance. not go to Germany very often, so this is going to be good. And while we all know, all know that true crime is rough. Um, this one is especially rough. Mm, yeah. So I'm going to talk to you about Armin Maivis. He was born December 1st, 1961 in Essen, West Germany. And my nephew, Ryder, he was the one who suggested this story to me. So I looked it up. And after researching, I think uh, I've definitely heard of this story. But he also informed me that Essen means to eat in German. There's not much to be said about his early life. He had two older half-brothers, and his father abandoned him when he was eight years old. So maybe there were some issues from that. Who knows? He was ultimately raised by his mother. Uh, He developed a fascination for cannibalism during his adolescent years after hearing the story of Hansel and Gretel. Hansel and Gretel? (laughs) 
That was What's good. What did you get? I think that was more like um, Norwegian. Norwegian, but oh, okay. <laughs> you gotta sound a little harsher. Oh God, Hans and Gretel. Yes. Okay. Nailed it. That was beautiful. <laughs> oh, I didn't even practice for that. It's <laughs> great. I'm telling you, it's from another life. I love it. You are so good with accents. <laughs> like your accents give me chills. <laughs> Please don't ever say that again. <laughs> that was so good. Uh, mine, I'm no. embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> nowhere near what mine are. Please, please, please. Go on. Go on. Stop. She's like, I'm embarrassed, but also keep going. No, really, this time I'm embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wanted to do a brief overview of the story for those who may not know it. I do not know it. I'm, so I'm real on Hansel and Gretel, okay? Because it's easier on my palate. Yes, yes. I don't expect that every <laughs> Thank single you. time. One, one and done. So the story is about kids hearing their parents talking about how they're going to abandon the kids in the forest. Uh, the children drop stones and breadcrumbs to help them find their way out of the forest once they're lost. The birds unfortunately eat the breadcrumbs and they get lost. They come upon a gingerbread house and they begin eating it because they were starving. The house was actually a trap that was set up by an old witch who enslaves Gretel and forces her to overfeed Hansel so that they can be eaten by the witch herself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doesn't this sound like a fun this friendly? Sounds, I don't think I ever put it all together, but this is it's terrifying. terrifying. The yeah. children. Grim, the Grimm brothers are terrifying. All of like <laughs> yes, their actual are. stories, like even Cinderella and the Little Mermaid are <clears throat> terrifying. Yes, they are. Uh, they managed to escape the old witch by shoving her into the oven mm-hmm. and then they return home and live happily ever after. That's according to that story. But oh boy. it's based on like actual real life events, which are even more horrifying. If you can imagine the story is based during the great famine of 1314 to 1322. So people during this time were choosing to starve to death to allow food for others mm. and they would abandon their children in the forest oh God. so that they could feed themselves. Less mouths to feed. That's terrible. Sometimes people would even dig up dead bodies and eat them. So that's where the cannibalism portion comes into, unfortunately. Yeah. So you can you can kind of see what's happening here. Uh, so f- flash forward to Armin's adult years. He began looking for a willing volunteer for someone to be eaten. He posted an advertisement on a website called the Cannibal Cafe. The advertisement said, quote, looking for a normally built 18 to 25 year old to be slaughtered and then consumed. And he was asking for somebody to to respond to that. I mean, the fact that there is a website called that. I know there's dark corners of the web. I know. It's called the dark web. And it surprises me. My question is, so if there are people seeking to eat others, are there people seeking to be eaten? In fact, there are. I bet we're going to find that out. In March of 2001, someone answered that call. His name was Bernd Jürgen Armando Brandt. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Give me chills. <laughs> Not that time. <laughs> it wasn't as forceful, but um, <laughs> he was a engineer from Berlin. So interesting side note. An engineer. Yes. It's like a very smart guy. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yes, yes, engineers typically are smart guys. Yes, <laughs> That's my point. He Thank responded. You. He was like, you know what? I like what you're putting out there. <laughs> so interesting side note, though. Multiple people responded to the advertisement. 
But everybody backed out except for Burned. Wow. I'm glad they backed out. I mean, I'm glad they did too, but it just goes to show that like... There are some messed up people in the world. There are some messed up people in the world. Armin and Burned. They made a video on March 9th of 2001. This is not really that long ago, I feel like. It's really not. (laughs) They made it in Armin's home in Wusterfeld. I think I made that up. (laughs) That was... So good. <laughs> the W, which I think is a V. I don't it know. Is. Please only ever do German stories. <laughs> I was just getting to say the same thing. Can you only do German or Norwegian or Russian? You are not allowed to do American stories anymore. Your talent is wasted. Oh my god! Thank you. I feel I feel seen. Thank you. All right. So back to Wusterfield. Uh, <laughs> so good and then like our German listeners are like oh my gosh that's terrible yeah, they are, they're like what the hell Do she, we have is she talking listener? about I think I so know, probably. we're gonna assume yeah. <laughs> they're like this is the worst hey, accent I've ever heard alright um, right, so back to the, the video they made a video yeah. um, Brand he took sleeping pills and a whole bottle of cough syrup he then told Armin to bite off his genitals, mm. which he did attempt to do, but he was unsuccessful. Even though I know the story, I'm still like, ah. It's horrifying. Why do you um, start with that? And this is on video, just FYI. Start with the pinky. <laughs> the pinky? <laughs> Better than the genitals. I would say like, maybe it's the pinky of the shoulder. body. Shoulder, maybe your buttocks. Oh, yeah. Take, take some fat. Yeah. <laughs> Any of it sounds horrible, but yeah, they agreed upon the genitals. They agreed it. Okay. The video showed Armin amputating Bron's genitals with a knife. Um, Then they tried to cook it and eat it together, but neither of them could finish their portion. In fact, Bron claimed that Armin didn't cook it right, and he complained that it was chewy. (laughs) Why would you want to eat yourself? I'm sorry. Why would you want to I eat your own know. penis? I don't so understand. Many I don't understand. I'm impressed that he did not die from lack of blood or like, you know. Well, Armin helped Brand into the bathtub and checked on him every 15 minutes because he's an excellent caregiver. Uh, while he went in and out of consciousness. Yeah. And after some time passed, Armin decided, um, I probably need to go ahead and kill him. Like I need to mercy kill. He's going to like, yeah, he's bleeding, bleeding out, out in the bathtub. So he stabbed him in the throat multiple times. After that, he then hung his body from a meat hook. And all of this was recorded on a four hour tape. Mm. Can you imagine being the police officer that yeah. had to watch that? that? Absolutely not. 100% no. Ugh. It's even worse than Ed Gein, I feel like. Yeah. 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 mm. So then he um, went ahead and dismembered and ate the body over the next 10 months. Just feasted on it. 10 months. I bet he had a big, deep freeze. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, funny you say that. No, I thought you were going to say we said big D. (laughs) I'm so sorry. You like pause. You're like, I bet he had a big (laughs) D. Nope. Just talking about his freezer. Just needs the storage (laughs) space. Lindsay. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that was terrible. I'm so sorry. <laughs> he kept parts of the body in the freezer. <laughs> in the deep freeze. Nailed it. Under some pizza boxes. Oh my gosh, no. It's estimated that he ate almost 
I want you to guess how many pounds of flesh. Oh, pounds? Pounds. Yeah. Um, I put it in fa- pounds because we are American. 100. Okay. Or I, 50 I kilograms. putting it in pounds. <laughs> Does that even convert right? Uh, it's close. It's 2.2. Okay. Two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I'd say 82 pounds. You know what? Uh, this is going to sound like a drop in the bucket. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, okay. 10 pounds. We can re-guess. Um, I think he maybe like 30 pounds. Okay. 10. 10. It was actually 44 pounds. Oh, Ooh. I was close. Uh, the second time. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, gross. That's, That's a still lot a lot of meat. Um, he put another advertisement on the website in December of 2002 because he just like couldn't get enough. Of course, as they do. Um, but a college student saw this ad, which questionable why he was on the website but whatever he saw it why anyone is on this website he was and he reported it why this website exists it no longer exists thank you thank god but he was on this website the college the college student was and uh saw the ad and reported it to police and was like even though i'm on a website where people eat each other the cannibal cafe this is too far weird Uh, investigators went to the home and found body parts and the video tape of the killing. But this is like, like you said, 10 months later, right? 10 months later. Yeah. Yeah. On January 30th of 2004, he was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to eight years and six months in prison. Eight years because it was consensual? Hold that thought. He has said in interviews that he regrets his decisions and that if anyone had similar thoughts that they should get help so that they don't escalate to the same level. So you are like, oh, do you really feel like that? Or are you just saying that? Who knows? Yeah. Also, here's the kicker. (laughs) I thought this was funny. He's now a vegetarian. Oh. I mean. Good for him. Maybe because he realized that he had this fetish, this craving for meat. He was like, maybe I should just not eat meat. Let's hope so. Any meat. Any yeah. meat might trigger him. Right, yeah. So Maybe we go meatless. Sure. Meatless. Okay. <laughs> of all meat. Uh, in April of 2005, a German court ordered a retrial arguing that he should have been convicted of murder because he killed for sexual gratification versus manslaughter. Uh, during the retrial, a psychologist stated that he could reoffend as he still had fantasies about devouring the flesh of young people. And on May 10th of 2006, he was convicted of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Mm. That is probably for the best. I think so. Yeah. Eight years is nothing. So, you know, while there may be only one person that we know of, um, still, whoa, fascinating on all ends. It is. That's disgusting. There you go. That is the case of Armin Maivis. No, thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Thank Let's you move. Cash Let's for that move on. Recommendation. <laughs> Let us move on. I am concerned I, about your nephew. <laughs> he. How old's your nephew? He, he's seventeen. Oh, okay. Sixteen. Okay. Uh, when is the cutoff for this to be okay for kids to know I, about? I don't think it's okay for me, and I'm thirty-two. <laughs> I'm just gonna spin. It's me. It's you. I'm last. Well, <laughs> it's hard to follow that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I think it should be easy because nothing can be as disgusting and depressing. Mm, don't prove me wrong, please. <laughs> I mean, true crime is always a... Let womp, me go womp. back to my land of everybody is a great person. <laughs> and that's how I get killed. So I'm doing a, lo- <laughs> I'm doing a local story. Okay. This is the story of Allie Kemp. Oh, oh okay. i this one. Yeah. In the summer of 2002, 19-year-old Allie Kemp was home for summer vacation. 
She was a college student at Kansas State University, where she had just finished her freshman year with honors. Her father described her as ambitious, hardworking, beautiful, and loving with dreams to travel to Russia to help children in need. Both Allie and her younger brother Tyler helped lifeguard at their neighborhood pool in Leewood, Kansas, which is a very nice, very affluent suburb just outside of Kansas City. Johnson County! Joko. (laughs) Also working at the pool was Allie's high school sweetheart and boyfriend of five years, Phil. Phil was also on summer vacation from KU. One June afternoon, Allie relieved Phil from lifeguard duties. It was very cloudy that day. Um, The pool was virtually empty. That night was supposed to be date night for Allie and Phil. And so Tyler was going to come and relieve Allie around five so that she can go and get ready for her date. But when Allie's brother came to take over the shift sometime around 5 p.m., Allie wasn't there. He saw her belongings laying out on the table. It was like her books and her homework and her phone and he knew that she wouldn't just abandon the pool and all her stuff and he was immediately concerned and called their house. Their dad, Roger, knowing that this was very uncharacteristic of Allie, rushed to the pool just about a mile from their house to find Tyler outside the gate looking worried and confused. The two looked around and it was Roger who found Allie in the pump room where her body had been covered with the tarp. She was severely beaten, strangled, and laying in a pool of her own blood. He called 911 as he told his daughter to stay with him. The 911 operator would ask if she was breathing, but he said he really couldn't tell. Allie was rushed to the local hospital, but she was pronounced dead shortly after arrival, likely having died before she ever got there. The family and the community held a vigil for Allie the next day, and soon over 1,400 family and friends would attend her funeral. Back at the pool house on the day of the murder, there was evidence of a struggle which indicated that Allie had tried to fight off her attacker. The scene was chaotic. Allie's flip-flops were in different places, and there was blood splatter, and things were kind of strewn about. They also found blood on the cap of an ointment tube that wasn't Allie's, and this would later be a key piece of evidence. Autopsy determined that Allie was strangled, she had broken her fingers, and tons of bruising all over. She was very badly beaten. Police began interviewing bystanders and then lawn workers, and some of the lawn workers reported seeing a man lurking in the bushes the previous day with a video camera, um, but this really couldn't be confirmed. They also said that on the day of the murder, they were in their cars eating lunch, and some guy in a truck just kept driving in the parking lot and out of the parking lot over and over, and they thought that that was really weird. So first, they looked into the boyfriend, the last known person to have seen her alive, and it was pretty short-lived looking into Phil, as it was pretty evident to everyone that he wouldn't have killed her. Her dad would later say that he was the perfect man for her. They got a lead from Allie's friend Laurel, who had come over to visit Allie at the pool. Laurel would tell investigators that she drove to the pool and honked her car horn over and over and over again, just as a joke, waiting for Allie to come out and be like, what are you doing? But then a man came out from the pool area and looked at her, and she thought it was Allie's boss and stopped honking and kind of ducked down, but they had already made eye contact, and the man waved at Laurel as he walked back to his truck. She watched him drive off, and then she waited for Allie, but ended up driving home after she didn't come out, not really thinking much of it. She helped police create a composite sketch of the man she saw, and flyers were made and and distributed across all of the area around there. 
Roger posted an initial reward of $5,000 and then quickly upped it to $25,000. And then the city would help match the cost and put a total reward out of $50,000 for any tips that would lead to finding her murderer. So lots of tips came in. And the first lead was on a man named James Strader. Someone said he looked like the composite sketch, which he kind of did, and he had a truck matching the one seen at the crime scene, so police went to his work, and they questioned him, but his boss would vouch for him, saying that he was at work all day during that day, and so the trail kind of went cold. A couple of years later, he got back on the police's radar when he was wanted for several rape charges in Kansas and Missouri, um, but was found in Utah and arrested after not paying for gas. Violence against women was becoming kind of a pattern for him, so police got a DNA test, but Mr. Strader would officially be eliminated as a suspect when his DNA was not a match. Mm. So, back to square one. America's Most Wanted came and did an excellent story on the murder in hopes of reaching more people across the nation. So, after this, more leads poured in, but nothing was panning out, and DNA testing and alibis were picking apart every lead that the police had. Roger, Allie's dad, is credited with being a big help in the investigation. He was calm, he was cooperative and polite, but also persistent. He would go to the station almost every day to see how he could help in the search for Allie's killer. So the big breakthrough was Roger's idea, actually, to put up a wanted sign with a composite sketch on a billboard. And he figured the newspaper ads and the flyers weren't cutting it and weren't enough to catch someone's attention. So he reached out to the local billboard advertising company, who then donated billboard space to help out. And soon, composite sketches with this wanted ad were all around the Kansas City area. And the billboard paid off, and soon the police received a ton of leads. And they kept getting the name Hoover. Sometimes it was Ted Hoover. Sometimes it was Teddy Hoover. Sometimes it was Ben Hoover. But it was always Hoover. And this guy looked somewhat like the composite sketch. And he also drove a truck just matching the description. And he was in the business of pool maintenance. So police would find this Teddy Hoover and request a DNA sample, but Teddy refused, saying that he didn't want to be in some database and that they needed to contact his lawyer. So they did. They contacted his attorney, who informed them within you know a few weeks that he had actually taken off and he had no information on where he was now. Mm. So in 2004, a couple years after, a tip came in saying that Teddy and his girlfriend were living in Connecticut, so the police tracked him down again. But this time, Teddy Hoover was going by his actual name, which was Benjamin Appleby. So close. Very close. I I can see how he got that name. It sounds like. So he had actually taken on the alias of Teddy Hoover in an effort to thwart law enforcement. And this was the name of a dead childhood friend who had been killed in a car accident at the age of 13. Uh, That's terrible. Yes. Slightly messed up. So they ended up finding that he had warrants for public exposure, and that's how they were able to arrest him. And this is where the police got pretty creative, and they staged the interrogation room to look like they were 100% certain that he's the killer. They have several props to make it appear as if they have tons of evidence against him and like he really doesn't have any hope of he he shouldn't lie, essentially. Mm -hmm. There was a large poster board with his picture in the middle. There are crime scene photos. There were two large binders with his name on the front when really they didn't have much. They were just hoping that this would would prompt him to confess. Sure. 
So allegedly his eyes got very big when he walked in and he realized that he was found out and pretty quickly he broke down in tears and did confess. He said that he went to the pool to either sell chemicals or to promote his pool maintenance business. When he saw this beautiful young woman in the pump room, he immediately thought that she was cute and tried to talk with her and flirt with her, but she made it clear that she was not interested, which enraged him. She tried to leave the room, but he blocked her. She hit him and he lost it, beating her and strangling her. He removed her clothes and attempted to assault her sexually using ointment as a lubricant, which is when the blood got on the cap. He was ultimately unsuccessful with this, covered her body with a tarp, and just walked out, and that's when he saw her friend Laurel. So even though he confessed twice to murdering Allie, he would plead not guilty. But DNA, however, would come back as a match, confirming Appleby was the killer. During the sentencing, a specialist described his upbringing as miserable, He was abused mentally and physically, was brought up in a home where cocaine and prostitution were mainstays. After his parents divorced, he was bounced from one home to another until he went out on his own at 16. He did have the traumatic experience of his childhood friend dying, and the expert said that this damaged his ability to be close to other people. He also showed a, quote, strong outpouring of rage out of proportion to any provocation, which appeared to match what had happened on the day that he killed Allie. Later, he was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to a hard 50, which, thank you for asking. What does hard 50 mean? my face, I did. I was like, <laughs> it's tell a, me more. It's a law where he would have to serve 50 years before he can even be eligible for parole. You which don't say. would be in 2054. That sounds very hard. It sounds like a hard law. A hard 50. It's a hard hard pass. So when Allie's family had the opportunity to deliver an impact statement, Appleby requested to leave the room. Oh, my gosh. Which is very Uh, cowardly to me. Thumbs down. And unfortunately, the judge let him do it. Uh, More recently, and I think it was 2019, um, Appleby had a hearing to have a sentence reduced. He said that because it was a trial by the judge and not the jury, that it was illegal for him to get a hard 50 sentence. Mm. Um, Listen. I I just found out about hard 50 20 seconds ago, but I think that's not (laughs) right. (laughs) I feel like it would be more with a... With a jury, but yeah. yeah, prosecutors were like, "No, hard a hundred. You're wrong. <laughs> You'll get a lifetime with yes. a jury. You're lucky you didn't get the death penalty, yeah, sir." Exactly. That's what I was hearing say. Yeah. Um. So this was denied, and he remains incarcerated at El Dorado, Kansas. El Dorado. <laughs> what? El Dorado Correctional Facility. That's not where I would picture like hard criminals. I was thinking that's where the BTK is. Oh no, shit! BTK's in El Dorado. Yes. Why did I think? I thought they were when both I in think, Leavenworth. Yeah, Leavenworth is where my mind I think mind Leavenworth goes. is for, like, federal crimes. It's for federal penitentiary, but are those not – those are state crimes? It's a state crime, They're yeah. state okay. crimes. They didn't cross state lines. Oh, my God. This that is my rudimentary knowledge, but I feel like that's what this – that's what it means. Look at him in BTK hanging out in El Dorado. Oh, God. Which Thumbs is not down. far from us. It's It's not. So, Roger would later be recognized by President Obama for his billboard idea, which was something that had never been done before nationally. And now it's used all the time, especially yeah. with the ones that you can update automatically. You have, you see yes. wanted like posters. We see them all the time on the Amber highway alert. driving to work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, that was Roger's Roger. idea. The family also founded the Ali Kemp Educational Foundation called Take Defense, and they offer self-defense classes for girls and help 
that something like this will never happen again to any other girl. They Mm. felt that if Allie had had self-defense training, she could have better fought off her attacker. That's true. But honestly, it's hard. It's hard to say. Yeah. But that is good work for to teach self-defense. Especially for assault and all that. Yeah. And, Lindsay, there's also been a book written named <gasps> Allie Was Here by James Davis. I have heard of it. I have not read it. You should read it and let us know what you think. Okay. And that it is, will be sad. That's the story <laughs> of Allie Kemp. Thank you. Thank you for that story. Yeah. Just a little local to bring us home. Man, we've had some seriously sad, fucked up crimes around this place. We have. Very. Okay. I am going to talk about a case that is very well known. I feel like that is kind of the theme of tonight. We've all known about each other's cases, so I'm sure you guys know about this one. It is an unsolved. God damn it, Lizzie. Moira Murray. Moira from Schitt's Creek? No. <laughs> all right. Show. I love that I'm show. sure you will, uh, it will sound familiar the more I go. Okay. okay. All right. All right. So Moira Murray, she was, I'm going to stumble over her name all night because of the double M's and the Moira R's. Murray. Just call Moira Murray. Moira. Okay. So she was born May 4th, 1982, in Hanson, Massachusetts. She was the fourth child of Frederick and Lori Murray, and she was raised in an Irish Catholic household. Her We're par- the same age. She, li- <laughs> she lived with her mother. Her parents divorced when she was six, so she lived with her mother after that. Gotcha. We are going to fast forward to college. So she went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst to study nursing. Mm, okay. Oh, sounds, sounds like a familiar, familiar tale. Mm. All right. From here on out, I'm just going to be, like, laying timelines because a lot of it is just based off dates, times, sure. all of that. Go so for it. Throw your times. This is where it all is going to start. Times. Time. Okay. Timestamp. February 2004. This is where we are. Okay. February 5th. So, she had a campus security job and she was working. She spoke with her sister, Kathleen, on the phone. They talked about Kathleen's relationship problems with her fiance. At around 1030 that night, she, Moira broke down in tears. When her supervisor came to the desk, she appeared, quote, completely zoned out, no reaction at all. She was unresponsive. The healthcare worker in me was like, she's not unresponsive. <laughs> she's just not responding to you. There is a difference. There, there is, is a, a difference. difference. Yeah. The supervisor, um, because she seemed so out of it, he took her to her dorm room at around 1.20 a.m. He asked her what was wrong repeatedly, and all she said was, my sister. Okay. Okay. So now looking back, we do know the contents of the call, but we did not find this out until October 2017. So for 13 years, nobody knew what they talked about. Okay. And Kathleen finally revealed that she was a recovering alcoholic and had been discharged from rehab that night. But on her way home, her fiance took her to a liquor store. And what year was this? 2004. 2004, this happened. We found out in 2017. She was such a baby. Mm -hmm. So her sister... Said, you know, I was on my way home from rehab. My fiance picked me up. He took me to a liquor store. And she, like, had an emotional breakdown and called her sister. So that's what they were talking about. Gotcha. But again, for 13 years, we didn't know. We just knew she had this upsetting phone call with her sister. So February 7th, two days later, it's Saturday. Maura's father, Fred, arrived in Amherst. They went car shopping. They were trying to pick out a new car for her. Then he went to dinner with her and a friend. She dropped him off at a motel that he was staying at and borrowed his Toyota Corolla. She went back to campus, went to a dorm party. She got to the party at about 1030 at night. She left at 230 in the morning. Uh, She was going back to her father's motel to drop the car back off and struck a guardrail on the side of the highway at about 330 in the morning. Mm. And mm-hmm. it caused about $10,000 worth of damage to the car. So 
Dang. I'm Pretty significant. I'm with you. I know the story. Yep. Pretty significant. Police arrived. They wrote an accident report, but they did not do any field sobriety tests despite her coming from a college party. Okay. So then police took her to her father's motel, and she stayed the night in his room. It was so late at that point, she just stayed. But at 4.49 a.m., there was a call from her father's phone to Moira's boyfriend. Uh, We don't know what occurred in this phone call. We don't know how long it was. Later that morning, Fred gets a call. He learns that insurance is going to cover all the damage to his car. So he rents a car because his car is not able to be drivable. He drops Moira back off at her dorm, and he heads back home to Connecticut. At about 11.30 that night, he called her to remind her to get accident forms from the Registry of Motor Vehicles so they could go over all the insurance claims and everything. This is Sunday night, and he says, hey, let's talk again tomorrow, and we'll go over the forms together and get them submitted. Sometime after midnight, so it's now technically early Monday morning, she used her computer to MapQuest directions to the Berkshires in Burlington, Vermont. Do you remember MapQuest? 100%. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I do, too. You had to Absolutely. print it out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which now, it seems kind of sketchy. Like, if you're driving, then you have to look like what route, what number you're on in the steps. And This was prior to GPS, y'all. Yeah. Prior to smartphones, I mean, prior to was, GPS. There was GPS. <laughs> there was GPS, but people weren't using it. Like, I remember us driving back and forth from Kansas to North Carolina, and my dad would map quest the entire thing and have it printed out. And my mom would be sitting there in the front seat reading it out loud. You need okay. to take this exit. I have taken many road trips with just a map. Yes. Just a map. Just a map. <laughs> Not map quest. I've looked on a map and said, this is the way we are facing. Nope. Can't do we it. We need to go That's this a lost way. art. It's <laughs> a lost art. I know. You know, I think it was lost with my uh, year because we are from the same generation, uh-huh. but I, I do don't know remember how. My dad, I don't know how. I do remember my dad buying maps at gas stations. Sometimes. Oh, yeah. I have- yeah. <laughs> My friend Wendy and I took a, a road trip to Wisconsin by ourselves when we were with 18 with a fucking map. I love it. And we got stuck in Podunk, Iowa. Yes. Yes. So she printed out MapQuest. For love those it. who are younger who may not know what MapQuest is, <laughs> it is just directions. Like how a GPS, but it's mm-hmm. printed out. Yeah. There wasn't that ability to do it on your phone. Yes. Okay. So that's sometime after midnight. She emailed her boyfriend at 1 o'clock on Sunday, 1 p.m., saying, quote, I love you more, stud. Stud. Nope. Nobody says that. <laughs> In 2004. Nope. Still no. What movie What movie says stud? Tell me about it. Yes. Stud. It's there Grace. It Grace. There it is. All right. I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promised to call today, though. Love you, Maura. She made a phone call that day asking about renting a condo in Bartlett, New Hampshire. Uh, The call was only about three minutes long, and the person she talked to on the other end of the phone said we didn't rent it to her. Like, nothing happened. 1.13 p.m., she called a fellow nursing student, but we don't know why. 1.24 p.m., she emailed her work supervisor on the nursing faculty saying that she would be out of town for a week due to a death in her family. Um, She said she would contact them when she was back in town. But nobody in her family had actually died. 2.05 p.m., she called a number which provides recorded info about booking a hotel in Stowe, Vermont, which lasted five minutes. 2.18 p.m., she calls her boyfriend. He doesn't answer, so she leaves a voicemail saying she'll call him later. Then she packed her clothes, her toiletries, some college textbooks, and her birth control pills. At 3.30 p.m., she left campus in her black 1996 Saturn sedan, 
Classes were canceled that day, fun fact, because of a snowstorm. So 3.40 p.m., she withdrew $280 from an ATM, and security footage shows that she's alone. Later, she went to a liquor store and bought $40 of alcohol, and again, she was alone. Uh, She bought some Bailey's Irish cream, some Kahlua, some vodka, and some boxed wine. She was there to have a good time. (laughs) She was. So she also at some point picked up accident report forms, like her father told her to, from the Registry of Motor Vehicles. Good job. So between 4 to 5 p.m., she left Amherst. During that time, um, they presumed that she left via Interstate 91 North. 4.37 p.m., she checked her voicemail. Um, This was the last recorded use of her phone. So at 7.27 p.m., there is a report of a car accident, which is about two hours and 16 minutes away from Amherst, where she left. A resident heard a loud thump outside her house, and she could see a car against the snowbank. Remember, there was a snowstorm going on. Right. So the resident called the sheriff's department at 7.27 p.m. to report the accident. She claimed she saw a man smoking a cigarette inside the car. And that's what the 911 call reports. Okay. However, this woman later said that she did not see a man or a person smoking, but saw what she thought was a red light glowing from inside the car, such as that of a cell phone. This is 7.27 p.m. Moira's phone was not showing that it was used past 4.37 p.m. Okay. That was quite a few hours later. Yeah. I think it's aliens. Always the answer. Mm -hmm. Another neighbor reported that they saw the car and someone walking around the vehicle and saw a third neighbor pull up. So this third neighbor did pull up. They were a school bus driver returning home, saw the car stranded, so stopped to help. Uh, She reports that she saw a young woman, cold and shivering, but there was, like, no injuries. Like, she wasn't bleeding. She wasn't bruised. Nothing like that. like, what do you do? Just wait for the police. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So the bus driver, he was like, let me call for help. But there was no, like, cell phone service. Oh, interesting. Uh, Moira said, no, you don't need to call for help. I've already called AAA. And AAA was like, no, we never got any record of a call. So the bus driver goes home where he has a phone, and that's when he makes the call for help, and that's at 7.43 p.m. He was unable to see her car from his house, but he said he did see several cars pass by on the road before he saw police arrive. So 7.37 p.m., a little bit before he was able to make the call to the police, another resident said that she drove past the scene and saw a police SUV parked facing her car. She briefly pulled over but didn't see anyone inside or outside either car, so she went home. But this contradicts the police report. So that take that with a grain of salt. And honestly, like, nowadays, cell phone era, it's easier, I feel like, to track times. Back then when people may not have all had cell phones, 7.37, 7.43 p.m. I mean, it's very specific. You're like, oh, it was around dinner time. Oh, it was right, right. whenever I get the kids in a bath. Oh, it's around this time. Right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, the stuff that is trackable, like when the phone calls were made and all that, but her saying at 7.37 p.m., I saw this car there. Uh, I Did still you? don't do that to this day. Yeah. Who knows? So, like I said, it contradicts police report because police arrived on scene at 7.46 p.m. This is what they say. So, official report says that nobody was at the scene. Uh, The car had hit the tree on the driver's side, it damaged the left headlight, and pushed the radiator into the fan, which basically means the car could not run. Uh, The windshield was cracked on the driver's side, and both airbags had been deployed, and the car was locked. So, this is 7.46 p.m., and the bus driver got home at 7.37 p.m., so they're saying realistically, because he didn't live that far from the wreckage, she probably had 10 minutes to get away. 
There were red stains um, that appeared to be red wine. Once they got inside the car, they found an empty beer bottle. They found a damaged box of wine on the rear seat. Found a AAA card, blank accident report forms, gloves, CDs, makeup, diamond, jewelry. Do we need to explain what CDs are? I thought you were going to ask about diamond jewelry. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I just remembered. CDs, people, are what we used to listen to music on. I still have CDs, but I can't play them in my car because I don't have a CD player in my car. I still have CDs and I still have a CD player in my car. Mm. Look at you. You're so bougie. My sister-in-law always (laughs) made fun of me because I always said it like CD. I don't know why it sounded like like CD S E E D Y uh-huh. CD. I used I don't to. Know. I still have all my burnt CDs from like college and high school. I've got era. a ton it's of CD. CDs. CD, but I don't do a CD. <laughs> so, so you say it. <laughs> you do it like CD. Okay, CD. Diamond jewelry. <laughs> she had MapQuest directions to Burlington, Burlington, Vermont, Burlington, 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 Vermont. Okay. Um, her favorite stuffed animal in a book about my- mountain climbing in the White Mountains called Not Without Peril. Oh. She was in a mountain right. climbing. Maybe she was going to Canada. Noticeably missing from her car was her debit and credit cards and her cell phone. Uh, her cards have never been used and her phone has never been found. Between 8 to 8.30, a contractor was returning home and said he saw a young person moving quickly on foot eastbound about four to five miles east of where her vehicle was crashed. That's not even an hour to get four to five miles away. In the snow. He reports that she was wearing jeans and a dark coat, but he did not report this until three months after the event because he says he got confused on his dates. That's suspicious. Four to five miles away in an hour in a (laughs) snowstorm is very sus. All right. 8 p.m. EMS and a fire truck arrive, clearing the scene. Meanwhile, the bus driver and the responding officer are driving around trying to find her, but they can't find her. 8.49, they tow the car to a garage, and at 9.30, the police finally leave the scene. They found with the car that a rag, believed to have been part of her emergency roadside kit, was stuffed inside the muffler. Okay, what? I did not know a rag was part of the emergency kit. In case you have a spill. Oh, okay. Like an oil spill? Wipe it up. Police later searched her room, of course, because they couldn't find her. So they look at her dorm room, and they found most of her stuff was packed up in boxes. Everything was taken off the walls. And on top of the boxes was a printout of an email to her boyfriend indicating trouble in their relationship. She just called him stud. Said she loved him. So now the search begins. All right, so we're going to go to the next day, which is February 10th, 12.36 p.m. So she was reported as a be on the lookout, reported as wearing a dark coat, jeans, and having a black backpack. So this was almost 24 hours since her last reported sighting, and they're still not classifying her as missing. 3.20 p.m., her father, Fred, gets a voicemail saying that his car had been found abandoned. So again, he's the owner of the car, like it's his name on the title, and it takes how many hours to even call him to say, hey, your car was in an accident. He was out of state, so he did not get the call. It went to voicemail. 5 p.m., her sister is contact contacts the father to tell him what happened. So I guess they called the sister next. So... The accident happened at 7.30, 7.45 p.m., and 5 p.m. is when family is notified about the accident and that they can't find her. You know, dad gets the phone call. He calls the police, and they tell him that she, they can't find her. But they also say, if we don't find her by the following morning, then we're going to start a search, and, you know, she'll be a missing person. So February 11th, the next day. So the accident happened on Monday. This is now Tuesday. So her father flies out like he gets the first flight out to Haverhill where the 
accident was. He gets there before dawn, and at 8 a.m., the search begins. So the Murrays were were accompanied by the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Um, A police dog tracked her scent 100 yards east from where the vehicle had been discovered, but then lost the scent. So police start to think maybe she did not leave on foot, and another car picked her up. At 5 p.m., um, her boyfriend and his parents arrive in Haverhill. He was interrogated in private by the police, but then his parents joined him for questioning. Because even though he's over 18, I mean, I don't know, college students, I still kind of think of them as babies. babies children. Yeah. Children. Yes, they still need their parents. No suspicions were really raised from these interrogations. So at 7 p.m., the police said that they believed that she had either run away or this was like a suicide attempt. Her family was like, no, no chance. Like, this is not what happened. Sadly, so because this is two and a half hours away from where they go to college, her boyfriend and his parents had to fly in to get to where they were, and his phone was off while he was flying. Yeah. During that time, he got a voicemail that they think was her just sobbing. Oh, no. That's Um, terrible. The call was traced to a calling card issued by the American Red Cross. But that is the only glue they have. Which Can you imagine? Like, your girlfriend goes missing, you're flying out to get her, and you get this voicemail of her crying, and that's the only thing you have left. So February 12th, the next day, this is when her father and boyfriend first held an evening press conference. Police reported that she may be headed to some highway area, Kangamagus. Kangamagus. And they listed her as endangered and possibly suicidal. The police report also listed her as intoxicated, but the bus driver who actually stopped to talk to her was like, no, she did not seem intoxicated at all. Like, she seemed totally with it. So, who knows if they were basing that off of, like, the empty beer bottle and the spilled wine. Wine could have been spilled because she wrecked her car into a tree. Sure. (laughs) So, week (laughs) after her disappearance, it's been a week. Her father and her boyfriend were interviewed by CNN. The search was expanded into Vermont because her map quest said she wanted to go to Vermont. That was the end point. But it took a week for them to even start looking in Vermont. Ten days after her disappearance, FBI finally joins the investigation because they're looking across multiple state lines. So the search uh, becomes nationwide at this point. They do helicopter searches, thermal imaging camera searches. They use tracking dogs and cadaver dogs at this point. They found nothing. March 2nd. We are coming up on a month. Uh, the family has been staying in this area. They finally check out of their motel room. They're like, it's time to go home. Like, we're not finding anything. Fred, her father, he returned every single weekend to continue searching for her, which just Aww. breaks my heart. Um, he even was getting complaints. Like, police were getting complaints of him trespassing on private property. And I'm like, dude, listen. Mm-mm. I'd be doing the same let, thing. Let it happen. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, There was another missing woman, Brianna Maitland, in Montgomery, Vermont, which is only about 66 miles away. And this happened in March 2004. So the media was, of course, drawing comparisons, saying, oh, my gosh, it's a serial killer. They're both young women. Um, But the police say, and they still say to this day, the disappearance are not related. April and June passed by. The police continued to, to dismiss any connection between these two cases. They report, quote, Moira was headed for an unknown destination and may have accepted a ride in order to continue to that location. End quote. They dismissed the idea that any serial killer was involved and they said they had no evidence that a crime had even been committed. So they are still on months later. This is a suicidal party. She left of her own free will. And family's like, absolutely not. Something Mm -hmm. happened. Yeah. So we're going to just kind of fast forward through the years. July 13th. 
2004, 100 volunteers show up to search the area. So this was the fourth search around the crash area, but it's the first performed without any snow on the ground. Um, But they didn't find anything. February 9th, 2005, it's the one-year anniversary. A service was held, um, and her father met with the New Hampshire governor, trying to petition with him to get more help in the search. Later in the year, in 2005, her father filed a lawsuit against several law enforcement agencies saying he wanted files on the case because, again, they're saying that no, like they're not treating it as a homicide, which at this point, he's like, something is wrong. So there is, which I think is the coolest thing ever, the New Hampshire League of Investigators. Of course there is. And it is amazing. composed of retired police officers and retired detectives who try to solve cold cases. And I love that. I Aww. think that is amazing. Go them. So they started working on the case with a foundation called the Molly Bish Foundation. It was reported, quote, it appears that this is something beyond a mere missing persons case. Something ominous could have happened here. End quote. An Arkansas group called Let's Bring Them Home offered a $75,000 reward in 2007 for any information, but nothing came out. October 2006, so two years later, volunteers start another search. And I just think this is kind of amazing that two years later, volunteers are still showing up trying to find this woman. Yeah. So they are searching in the area, and one mile away from the crash site, they find a house where cadaver dogs, quote, went bonkers they went bonkers bonkers <laughs> they bonkered out which cadaver dogs find human remains mm-hmm. and they go bonkers <laughs> they go bonkers they for crazy. human remains yeah um so the house this is kind of confusing because it would not give me any names so we're gonna call this man bill this is okay. bill's house did okay. you make that up i made this up okay they don't give any names and they won't um so we're yeah. gonna call him bill because right, i kept bill. saying this man this man this man yeah bill so this is bill's house Back in 2004, two years prior, Bill's brother had given Maura's father a rusty stained knife and said that Bill and his girlfriend were acting strange after the disappearance. Bill's brother said he thought that Bill had used the knife to kill Maura. Family members, though, of this brother, of Bill's brother, said that he did this to get reward money. They were offering all this money, and they said he uses drugs. He's not to be trusted, so police pretty much discarded it. Sure. They didn't have anything. Like, they just had a rusty stained knife and this brother who's using drugs saying this. Yeah. So police didn't pay any attention to this. So two years later in 2006, Bill's house, the cadaver dogs are going crazy in his closet. So police took a sample of the carpet in the home, but the results to this day have never been released to the public. Hmm. Oh, hate that. Hate it. Release, release the evidence. Release it. 2009, we're going to fast forward three years after this. Her case is finally added to the cold case registry. 2010, her father goes public and criticizes the police investigation for treating it as a missing persons. He says this is not a missing persons anymore. This is a criminal matter. After this, her case, though it's still a cold case, is treated as a potential homicide now. 2014 was the 10-year anniversary, and there has still been no credible sighting since the night that she disappeared. Her father and her family went public again and said that they believe that she is deceased. Um, They think she was abducted on the night of her disappearance and believe that she is dead. February 2019, the 15-year anniversary. Fred, her father, again reports that he believes Mara is dead, but is still suspicious about the house with the cadaver dogs. He said, quote, that's my daughter. I do believe it. April 2019, the owner's bill previously would not cooperate with police. 
So they couldn't get in to investigate or do anything really extensive. So the house was sold in April 2019. And the new owners were like, yeah, do whatever you need to do. So the house was excavated, uh, specifically in the basement. They allowed police to come in and search. Um, The excavation found, quote, absolutely nothing other than what appears to be a piece of pottery and old piping. In September 2021, bone fragments were found on Loon Mountain, which is 25 miles east of the crash site. She had been to this mountain before and had knowledge of the area, so there was hopes that maybe this might be her. But in November 2021, after extensive testing, it was not her remains. Mora's case has been described as the first crime mystery of the social media age. So when she disappeared, Facebook was five days old. Wow. Um, so Facebook pages, MySpace pages, all of those were dedicated to finding her. That'll make you feel old. <laughs> yeah, sure does. <laughs> Happy birthday, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> So you can still find Facebook pages. Reddit still has um, a page that is dedicated to finding her with 37,000 members on it. People are still trying to find her. So we still don't know what happened to Moira. There's a lot of theories out there. One, which the police seem to believe still to this day, is that she was suicidal and was looking to run away. She had all these MapQuest things printed. She emailed someone she was going to be gone for a week. She looked like she was running away. Her whole room was packed up. Another popular theory is that she was abducted by a car because the scent was lost, uh, you know, 100 feet away. So they think she was probably picked up by someone and she was murdered is widely held belief. Um, There's been theories thrown out that her boyfriend was involved. um, Theories thrown out that her father was involved as well in her disappearance. But most people don't believe those with how involved her father has been. Yeah. I find that hard to believe, too. Sure. Another theory is that she ran off because she was afraid of getting a DUI on her record because she was in nursing school Mm -hmm. and that would ruin things. Um, And they think that snowstorm, she just died in the elements. But again, we've never found any trace of her. So that's kind of odd, too, with how extensive the searches have been. Sure. Even given the elements and given animals and everything, there still has been zero things found. That seems bizarre to me. So I don't really think the elements. I think somebody took her in. I think you're right. She was murdered. I think it was just like right on the cusp of social media. If it had been like Mm -hmm. six months to a year later, things might be different. You never know. Because people really do use social media and Facebook Mm -hmm. and all those things to network and put things out there. But at that time, no. It was all about getting your own pictures out there. You know what I mean? Well, it's terrifying to think about, too. Like, she literally, like they said, had 10 minutes to disappear. There's a 10-minute window and then just gone. Yeah. Well, that's horrifying. Thanks, Lynn. You're welcome. So, it's an unsolved. Um, I hate I those. I know. I don't know if we'll ever know. I think pretty much everyone believes that she is dead now. They don't think that she's still alive. Honestly, I get that. Like, yeah. at some point, you just need, like, closure. I feel terrible for the family, though, that they will. Sure. Yeah. They don't know what happened. So, that is... Moira Murray. You said you know the case. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've I've heard that several times. It's super popular Mm -hmm. just because it's fascinating. And like you said, it's just so popular on social media even now. Look at us talking about popular cases tonight. We are. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in this week to our true crime. True crime. True crime. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in this week to our true crime episode. You can always find us at the Tipsy Ghost and dot com. (laughs) And dot com. <laughs> Try again. 
Thanks so much for tuning in this week, guys. You can always go to thetipsyghost.com and find our socials from there or send us an email at thetipsyghost at gmail.com. Let us know any ideas of stories that you want us to cover. Please give us a five-star rating and a great review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate it and it really does help. <laughs> Make it for me. You can't even do it either. Do you want to do it again? You good? Okay. Thanks so much, guys, for tuning in this week. You can... Nope. What are you doing? Uh, we covered that. <laughs> I think we're good there. All right, guys. Thanks so much. We will check in with you guys next week. <laughs> nope. Hold on. No. Okay, no, bye. No, no, no. <laughs> bye. Thanks. Nope. <laughs> yeah, bye. Bye. Uh, uh, bye. Bye. <laughs>